Thanks, readers. Uh, hello, everyone. If you're visiting, Malcolm's Malcolm. Malcolm is my name. Um, we've been doing a series on 1 Samuel. We've had two weeks where we've been doing something different. Last week, uh, James Duff was with us. He's uh, planting a community uh, south of the river here. And we'll hear from James in a minute as well. Uh, and then the week before... What are doing the week before? It was something else. It was something else on... Sustainable, sustainable September. We spoke about God and His uh, greenness. Looking for a leader. Um, this week uh, we're on page two, 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 one, two, 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 and you're going to need it. We're actually going to, and I'm going to ask you some questions, and you're going to give me real lifetime, real time answers to those questions. But last hurrah speeches. This is what I call a last hurrah speech. And, you know, I thought, oh, all the last hurrah speeches. I'm a fairly limited character, and uh, I could mostly think of football coaches but, um, <laughs> and their last hurrah speeches. I remember one particular coach of the University Blacks who said, come on, boys, we're going to go out there and annihilate them. <laughs> so it was a fairly intelligent crew, you know, as we went and, and, and annihilated the Uni Blues. But there we go. The Bible's got some of the greatest last hurrah speeches. Jesus' last hurrah speech in John's Gospel, for example, goes for four chapters. Good night. But you know it was a good speech because two things came out of that speech that we still practice today. The notion of washing of feet as a sign of humility in our faith. So his last hurrah speech still sticks with us today. And this, which we'll celebrate at this table later on, is part of that last hurrah speech of Jesus. I know Duffy's uh, probably favourite last to last speech comes from Matthew's Gospel. Here's the last thing that Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel. He came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always even to the end of the age. That's a cracking last hurrah speech. And I know it's a great speech because it's still working. It's working still today. And I know that, I know that, because this happened yesterday. Thanks, Mike. G'day, guys, commoners. I'm here in the old collar and way. And I just want to say that we sold our fridge and the guy came here and uh, picked it up and I prayed for him. And then I said, do you mind if I show you how I came close to God? And I shared a simple gospel message with him. I drew it on the back of his car in the dust. And he's, I said, do you want to accept Jesus as your Lord? And talked about what it was. And he says, yes, I do. And we pray for him. <laughs> and he's come to faith. And now I'm catching up with him in a couple of days, him and his wife. And um, they're gonna. He wants to go. Mm, I think I, the, the baptism thing sounds good. Um, so I'm catching up with him in two days' time to follow him up. He's given his life to the Lord. I shared with him a simple gospel presentation. I prayed for him, shared a gospel presentation, and then he's come to faith in Jesus. And I don't know what God's going to do with that. But there's just the first thing I've done this morning. Um, I've come here. I've prayed for someone. I said, can I pray for you? I prayed for him. I asked him, do you mind if I show you how I came near to God? He said, sure. I drew out what's called the three circles. 
I said, which circle are you in? He said, I'm definitely in the broken. I said, do you want to come into the good one? He said, yes. So I, I explained to him what that meant, into God's circle, into God's family. And he said, yes. And so I prayed that for him. And he said, that's awesome. And then I said, fantastic. Let's catch up in the next couple of days. He's a little bit hesitant. He may turn back on me and not come back. But he's actually said yes and wants to. He said yes to following Jesus. So let's pray for His name's Jung. Um, he's a um, Australian, I think, Chinese, um, and uh, he's just got a good fridge, and he's following. Now he's a believer, so let's <laughs> Thanks, pray Mike. now we for get your the Lord Jesus. So the great last hurrah speeches are working today. Um, that amazing last hurrah speech that uh, Claire read from us, from, from Paul. That's Paul's last hurrah speech. And as you break it down, he, he talks about his hope. Uh, Jesus, the judge, who will appear and bring his kingdom. Paul's hope. He urges them to proclaim, persist with patience. He says a time's coming that's going to be difficult. So then he instructs them. He says, as for you, and then he says, as for me. And for himself, he says, I fought, I finished, keep the faith. Great last hurrah speech. Do you know the amazing thing about that speech is really its context. You may not know the context uh, of that speech. Um, Very quickly, I'll find it here. Timothy, come on. And I'll I'll read you the context of that speech. It's just, just one verse. Here's the context. No one came to my defence. They have all deserted me. That's the context of his last hurrah speech. Wow. Wouldn't you be giving your life the big tick? But you see that he holds on to his hope. Proclaim, persist, with patience. A time's coming that's going to be tough. As for you, as for me, I fought, I finished, I've kept the faith. Last hurrah speech. And my favourite is John the Baptist's last hurrah speech. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been set ahead of the Messiah. Remember that he who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy, John says, is replete that Jesus has now come, he must increase, but I must decrease. I think that's my, my line in ministry. That's my job. They must increase, but I must decrease. So here in 1 Samuel 12, on page 121, 122, we have a last hurrah speech. And it's couched in what we call, it's, it's like a courtroom drama. It's what we call covenantal language, where they're, they're really renewing a covenant and its promises, and Samuel is reminding them in his last hurrah speech. There's lots of these covenantal-type judicial things in, in God's word. They're, they're, they're quite common. Jesus' whole work is couched in a, in a covenant. In fact, in communion today, we'll discover that it's a new covenant in his blood, a new agreement in his blood. God made a covenant with Abraham in in the garden. He said, you do what you like, but uh, with Adam, Adam, Abraham, with Adam and Eve, 
You can do what you like, but just don't do this one thing. So, of course, you know what they go and do. Moses got out of the ark and there was a rainbow. And it was a covenantal promise. The rainbow was a picture of the promise. I must be very tired. It's good to see you right with me there, Cheryl. Just tracking really well. So Abraham, Adam was a garden with Eve and a tree and a fruit. Got that? Moses was a rainbow. <laughs> Noah was a rainbow. Abraham was the first time that we, we actually see blood coming into a covenant, the sacrifice of an animal when Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness and an animal is slaughtered and cut in half and they travel between the animal as a sign. And Christ, God himself, becomes that sacrifice for us and cuts covenant with us and for us. Covenant's interesting because it's always the stronger conferring the covenant on the weaker in scripture. And the beauty of it is, is the strongest saying to the weaker that everything that I am and have, I will literally cut an agreement with you and I will grant you everything that I have. But that covenant promise always comes with covenantal conditions. There are conditions that need to be followed. So Samuel is renewing these promises and expectations in this last hurrah courtroom drama. So let's have a look at how it rolls in verse 1. He says to them, I've listened to you and done what you have asked. I've given you a king who will lead you. Verse 3. Now, firstly... Who brings a charge against me, Samuel, in the presence of the great king, Yahweh, and this talisman king, Saul, who you've demanded to have? Who brings a charge? Have I, he says, stolen? No. Defrauded? No. Oppressed? Now you tell me. Think back to those days. Who usually stole, defrauded and oppressed? The king. The king usually did that to his vassals and people around him. The earthly kings. So Samuel is representing the great king here, Yahweh, while he stands next to Saul and he, he asks the question, who has done this? Who brings a charge? And the answer is, no one brings any charge against the king of kings. Wow. <clears throat> Wait till Saul gets going. You'll see there's a few charges to be brought. Secondly, verse 7. Essentially, it's, well, who brings a charge then directly against Yahweh against the king of kings. The God, your saviour, who, here are the things, gave you Moses and Aaron in Egypt, managed your escape from Egypt, saved you and your ancestors again and again, saved Jacob, which is 
really code for Israel, saved the whole nation and gave them all safe passage and safe place. So who brings charge against this king? And how did they, verse 9, reward the king of kings that achieved all those things for them? You tell me. How? Sorry, Alison? They forgot him. Parents of teenagers, get ready. If it hasn't started now, it's on the way. You who were once great will now become much less than you wish you were, to the point of being, at, well, if you're lucky, you'll be forgotten. If you're unlucky, you'll be reviled. How did they reward the king of kings? They forgot him. And there was a consequence. This is how it rolls. Keep going. What was the consequence? They fell into the hands of their enemies at great cost. It's interesting, isn't it, how modern parenting has seen one of its key roles as, um, as rescuing our children from the consequences of their behaviour. Rescuing our children from the consequences of their behaviour. No consequence, no learning. And even with consequence, often limited learning. I wonder why we struggle so much to allow our kids to feel the full weight of the consequences, even the legal weight of the consequences of their learning. Probably because it says something about us and our success, but that's just me. That's what I'd think it was if it was me. So after they fall into these situations, uh, into the hands of their enemies at great cost, they respond in verse 10. What do they respond? They cry out, Help! I'm drowning! It sounds like us, really, this, doesn't it? And Yahweh, and Yahweh, what does he do, verse 11? He raises up saviours. Helen just said she's looking at the book of Judges. They're judges. So here we are, Helen takes them back to these judges, Jephthah, Barak, etc., and others. So Yahweh himself raises up rescuers and saviours who rescue them again and again and again. So Samuel's last hurrah gives clear evidence that the faithful one is the king of kings. The faithful one is God who uses circumstances and people to ultimately redeem, buy back at great expense his people and then keep them safe over this process. But we see all sorts of mess around that. It's terribly messy. Yet Israel choose to break this covenant by demanding a B-grade human king, which we've already experienced. God gave you what you wanted, Samuel says. He acquiesced to your covenant-breaking demand, which if you flick over to verse 17 that was read for us today, we discover is described as their great wickedness. Somehow thinking that wearing a pendant called Saul would change the circumstance of what had to this point been the effective saving work and maintaining work of the King of Kings, God himself. 
But the demand for a king, this ineffectual worldly talisman, actually changes nothing in terms of the covenant we discover. There's actually still only one king. Whose covenant is it? It's the king of kings covenant. It's Yahweh who cuts the covenant that they still have to keep. And under this king, we're told, you will fear the Lord, serve the Lord and follow the Lord. And if you do those things, things will go well. But if you rebel, the hand of God will be against you. You see, nothing's changed. They've added Saul, but the covenant remains the same. You still have to fear, serve and follow. And then we're given what you might call a covenant seal. Often it was the slaughtering of an animal in some way, the big rubber stamp. Here, it's the evidence, Samuel says, that what I've just said to you is the way it is. Nothing has changed. And a great storm descends on a very ripe wheat crop. This is the the sign that what Samuel has said is what's true. Now, where they were in Israel in summer, it doesn't rain. It just doesn't happen. But this hard-hearted people, you wouldn't necessarily expect them to respond to this sign. And you wonder, what is it with prophets and storms? I mean, the Bible is just full of prophets and storms. Whether it's Jesus on a sea, whether it's Elijah, or here, whether it's Samuel. And incredibly, a wave of conviction and repentance sweeps over them, at least for the time being, and they repent of their behaviour. So we live under a covenant as Christians. We live under the new covenant. In my blood, Jesus declared. Isaiah says that we're all like sheep. We've all wandered off. We've all gone astray. But the Lord has laid on one sheep as a sacrifice for us all, our iniquity, the iniquity of us all in Isaiah 53. Then Paul says in Romans, the wage of that iniquity, that sin is ultimately our death. Remember, Adam and Eve broke the covenant and it has consequences. So... But the free gift of God is resurrection, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We live under covenant, you see. He who knew no sin, Paul says in another place in Romans, he who knew no sin, Jesus, has become sin in order that we would become the righteousness of God. So you can see the benefits of the covenant are conferred on us. We get all things because of what the more powerful one has done for us. And then finally, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So how do we actually get this benefit? It's simply by faith. The free, unmerited favour of the covenant cutter, Godding, God, Godding, God, gives us by faith the benefits of that covenant. It declares in Ephesians where where this verse is, that this is not your own doing. This is the free gift of God, his choice to cut the covenant. You can't cut cut it. You can't make covenant with God. And it's not because of your works, lest any of you should say, look at our king. It's the great switch. 
at God's expense, everything has become ours and everything had become theirs in Yahweh as well. The great one had conferred all this wonder on the little ones, guarded them, kept them safe, given them land and so on. The price for us today, as with them, was to believe and receive. Believe and receive. How did you know that they back then had believed and received? How do you know that you and I have believed and received? Simply by what we do or don't do. But here's the interesting thing, and it's here in the text today. When the next great catastrophe looms, the next threat, the next challenge to family, faith, finance, whatever it is, when the next catastrophe is on the horizon, for some mad reason we completely um, forget all that's happened before and how we've got to this place. And we throw up our hands and go, oh no, this is the last straw. I'll never make it through this one. In Samuel's story, it was the chapter before, it was Nahash. Oh no, this is the one, this is, the, this is what we needed a king for. And the king comes through. It's like he provided last time, but will he provide this time? Cheryl and I lived with a missionary couple, very old folk. You know, by the time we were listening to them, they'd been missionaries in the Solomon Islands for, I think, 32 years. And I remember Edna, who was a very gifted Bible teacher, I remember us asking her, Edna, because they never had a zack, they never had a thing. And um, I remember asking Edna one day, do you, do you ever wonder, you know, if God won't turn up for you? And, of course, I was thinking about cars and houses and bills and money, and she said, oh, I never worry about that stuff. I said, what do you worry about then? She said this. She said, I worry that in that moment... When I most need him, that he won't be there. My spirit won't connect with his spirit and I won't have enough spiritually to cope with whatever I have to cope with in the future. Her spiritual provision was the thing that she worried about. So then Samuel gives us his spiritual fitness drivers you know, his, these are my spiritual fitness drivers. Much like Paul, at the end of his last hurrah speech, gave his spiritual fitness drivers. When you look at them, you'll notice they're almost identical. Here are Samuel's in verse 20, his spiritual fitness drivers. Don't give way to fear and doubt. Don't give way to fear and doubt. Secondly, Follow the Lord with all your heart. And thirdly, serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't give way to fear and doubt. Follow the Lord and serve the Lord. And I know when Cheryl and I looked at Edna's life, that was what Edna's life looked like. Obey his clear commands. Don't turn aside, your text says, to useless things other useless things. We do, don't we? God will never turn his back on us. So don't turn your back on him to chase after some other mechanism that is ultimately useless. 
And then the prophet gives a couple of promises in verse 23. Beautiful promises to you. This is the prophet's promise to you. He says, far be it for me to sin against you by ceasing to pray for you. Far be it for me by sinning against you by ceasing to pray for you. Just grab your white pew sheet. I'll go and get mine. We've covenanted covenanted to pray in this church in our hunger to authentically grow young. We've covenanted with our young people to pray for them. And on this page, you'll see the box. So let's do what the prophets just said to do. Let's pray for our young people. So halfway down in the box, you'll see it says, we praise you. Let's pray together for our young people. Together, we praise you for your work in the life of. We know that it is you who gives them both the will and the ability to do your will and fulfil your purpose you have for them in this life. Grant that they may fully take hold of the wondrous gift of salvation they have received in your Son and let them make it the foundation of life that glorifies you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first prophet's promise is, far be it for me to sin against you by ceasing to pray for you. Five o'clock, after voluntary assisted dying, we will pray. Feel free to join us in that place. And the second thing in verse 23, be open to good and right instruction. Be open to God's word and its instruction. Trust God, serve him with your heart, ponder the great things he's done for you. Uh, This week I found again one of our senior saints, a lady named Anda Simmons. Uh, I like Anda. She gives me a flea in the ear every time I see her and it's always got a glint in her eye. Anda was the wife of Teddy Simmons, who was the vicar here um, in the 1960s. Teddy died, a young man. He'd been in the Second World War and suffered terribly, um, really, just by, by probably the post-traumatic stress and all those sort of things of the war as a chaplain. And he left Anda uh, when he died. Um, he was the vicar here uh, with four children, um, really, and nothing. No, they certainly had no property or anywhere to live. And in those days, God blessed the Anglican Church because um, they offered her no support and basically ejected her uh, out of this community. Happy days. That's this church in the 1960s. Um, Anda was treated appallingly, and as as a result, that's had all sorts of impacts on her life. As I said, I I found her the other day. I found her in a nursing home uh, down in Bicton, and I went and visited her. She's a very bright lady, 96 years old, and she said, you know, Malcolm, she said, as I think about those days, I think about Teddy dying, I think about those four children and it being announced that, uh, sorry, there was nowhere for me here. Uh, the church had no backstops, no means of help. Uh, and how my life unfolded uh, from that point, she said, as I look back, he's always found a way. 
And she said, I'm, I'm one of the 5% of people in nursing homes, she's 96 years old, um, who get it for free. And, and she's sitting down there in Bicton and she said, and look at my view. <laughs> and I just loved that because after being treated appallingly by the church, by Christians, by this church, um, here she is testifying to the fact that where there was no way, uh, God's always found a way. Some of her kids are missionaries. Um, amazing testimony, both of her faithfulness, but of God's great faithfulness to her. If you don't trust that God will turn up, you'll be swept away, this passage says. You and your king, Samuel says, to the nation. So, Lord, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. It's just a reminder that even though we're faithless, you remain full of faith. Father, thank you for Paul's hope. Proclaim, persist with patience. For a tough time may be coming. I've fought, I've finished, and I've kept the faith. Amen.